With the news media reporting increasingly more data breaches and cybersecurity events and the use of personal data in ways that invade people's privacy, you need to know how to keep your business's data, not to mention your own personal data, safe from hacks and your business operating in the most secure environment. Otherwise, this can not only hurt your business reputation, it can cost you clients. Welcome to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. We're here to help you prevent potential damages and losses before the hackers even have your number. Now, here is the Privacy Professor and your host, Rebecca Harold. Hello and welcome to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. I'm Rebecca Harold, your host. Thank you for joining us. Welcome to the 85th episode of my show. Please subscribe to my show on iTunes, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, Player FM, Google Play, Overcast, TuneIn, CastBox, Podtoppin, or whatever your favorite podcast or news app is. Also, please subscribe to my show on the Voice America Business Channel website, and then you will be notified just as soon as each new show is available. And I want to thank you, uh, all my listeners throughout the world. I truly do appreciate you, and thank you for listening, and thank you for taking time to send me so many messages. I truly do read those. Uh, Sometimes I can't answer them all right away, but I do read them, so please keep those coming in. My March Privacy Professor Tips message was published at the end of February. Please sign up for them. I've provided these for free since 2005, and I've been archiving them since 2007, and I've been doing this in an effort to raise the general awareness of information security and privacy issues, and also to provide a free awareness publication for organizations to use within their own business to send to their employees as part of their training and awareness programs. So you can sign up for them by going to privacyguidance.com and submitting your email in the box in the upper right part of your screen. And we are now providing free ebooks and awareness videos through my privacysecuritybrainiacs.com site. Get them from there and sign up for notifications about those from that site. So today I am covering a very, very timely topic in the next of my series of shows that cover voting and elections security. It's about malicious elections and campaign interference attempts. You know, there continue to be more lessons to learn from the past really over eight years of election cycles here in the U.S., lessons that can also be applied throughout the world. And it's about the need to build in strong security and privacy protections to the associated processes and systems and even the physical components of elections to truly strengthen democracy as well as to establish verifiable and validated election results. And besides the really tsunami of misinformation that was and 
well, it still continues to be spread throughout social media channels. Um, There are also many other platforms and pathways where nation states and um, domestic disruptors launch thousands of attempts to try and influence or cast doubt on elections. In August of 2020, the FBI reported verified attempts and reported the election interference goals of China and Russia and Iran. Now, often through election candidates' campaign organizations and associated groups. So what kind of interference are we talking about here? And how does strengthening security practices help to prevent these interference goals from being fulfilled? Well, I am so happy to have the perfect person to speak with today to answer these very questions. Today, I'm speaking with Matt Barrett. He is the co-founder of U.S. Cyberdome, a nonpartisan nonprofit that's dedicated to improving cybersecurity within political campaigns and party committees, as well as the think tanks and vendors that support them. Now, Matt co-founded U.S. Cyberdome along with Joseph Drizel and Mary Dickinson, and also participates in U.S. Cyberdome's daily operation, along with Executive Director Pro Tem, Air Force Brigadier General retired Francis X. Taylor. Matt previously led the framework for improving critical infrastructure cybersecurity. Most of you probably know that as being the cybersecurity framework program for the National Institute of Standards and Technology, otherwise known as NIST. Now, Matt's awareness and education campaigns truly did propel the cybersecurity framework to one of the world's most popular cybersecurity risk management approaches. And you can see it if you go onto LinkedIn. There are discussions about that almost every day. You can see more about Matt Barrett on my Voice America show site. Matt, thank you so much for being my guest today. Welcome to my show. Thank you very much, Rebecca. It's wonderful to join you. Well, I have been looking forward to our discussion so much because, well, first of all, I'm intrigued by just the name of U.S. Cyberdome. I, that conjures all sorts of images in my head, but um, I love that name. I wonder, what is the goal and mission for Cyberdome, and really, what motivated you to be a co-founder of this group? Yeah, I mean, the increasing the cybersecurity of the campaign community, uh, which we view as uh, the political campaigns and the party committees, uh, as well as the think tanks and vendors that support them, all collectively, we kind of say that's the, the campaign community. Increasing cybersecurity there is our objective. Uh, it's a very um, isolated community. It's a very uh, high-stakes community, and so that's part of the reason we, we wanted to be there. I mean, you mentioned over the past eight years, 
coming into the, you know, really uh, the public coming into the greater awareness of um, the types of things, the types of activities that uh, political campaigns are exposed to, uh, subjected to, uh, and some of the, the, the highly advanced adversaries that attempt to gain access uh, Iran, Russia, North Korea, North Korea, China, etc. Those threats are more than past threats. Those threats are com- are current threats. Per your mention of the FBI, per some of the Google and and uh, Microsoft reporting along the way, and there's an incredible amount at stake here. Um, it's it's beside a momentary inconvenience inconvenience of computer systems not working, right? What's at stake is, uh, as we saw in the Hillary Clinton campaign in, in 2016, what's at stake are real votes uh, as a result of cyber cyber breaches, and then even more so, there's long term national security repercussions when a campaign is infiltrated. Uh, a lot of the folks in a campaign. Uh, the candidate themselves, but certainly a lot of the, the campaign personnel ultimately go on to have high-ranking roles in the in our U.S. government in some way, shape, or form. And so when an adversary might want to gain access to, uh, let's say, sensitive non-public information like uh, trade stances or, or policy stances that are not yet public, or when they want to gain access to national secrets, this is a point of entry. Uh, the campaigns are. So there's a lot at stake in this space. That's one of the big motivators for us founding this organization. So, yeah. So, you know, I remember that time so well back 2015 to 2016. In fact, I was over in Singapore with a client around that time. And and so much was being discussed about, like you were saying, the emails of the campaign uh, for Hillary Clinton, would you say that that might have been like the pivotal incident that maybe made you and your co-founders say, oh, we need to do something? Or was it just accumulation of like, look at how this is proliferating, all this attacks on email? And maybe was it even the use of email that maybe you saw as being a threat? Because it seems like the campaigns really depend upon email quite heavily. Is that a true statement, or am I just overgeneralizing that? Oh, there's a lot of truth in what you said. I mean, the uh, uh, I think the t- really what happened with that email disclosure circumstance was uh, that was really the moment where a, a large portion of the public became aware of just how incredibly important campaign cybersecurity can be and what might might occur. Interestingly, in our U.S. Cyberdome history, we had founded U.S. Cyberdome um, originally as a 501c3 nonprofit in 2014 in preparation for that 2016 election. We had some some of our founding members had seen um, some some activity at the time that in that community that was um, an indicator uh, that that those protections were needed, and so that was a compelling event uh, that that actually triggered Joe Drissel, my co-founder, to found the original incarnation of U.S. Cyberdome back in 2014. So, in a way, we were kind of ahead of that public curve, um, but. Um, uh, now we're back in a in a slightly different form here in twenty in the twenty twenty election cycle. Yeah, evolving for sure. So, what 
is it that makes U.S. Cyberdome well-suited to help uh, prevent these types of attacks or malicious activities? Yeah. You know, the, the well, you mentioned some of my background and, and mm-hmm. uh, at the National Institute of Standards and Technology. And so one way of summarizing my, you know, the, the leadership and ultimately the um, awareness and education campaign that propelled cybersecurity framework to worldwide use, that, that is, uh, could be summarized as, I know a lot about the way that good guys manage cybersecurity risk. <laughs> yeah. um, my co what's that? Oh, I agreed. I said, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Uh, my co-founder, and I'm not sure if you had a chance to meet my co-founder, Joe Drissel. Joe used to be chief of intrusions at Department of Defense Cyber Crime Center, world's largest computer forensics institute. And, um, you know, interestingly, Kevin Mandia, who went on to form Mandia and ultimately, ultimately uh, uh, is, is um, lead executive of FireEye nowadays, uh, Kevin actually had the role just before Joe. So that's kind of a, uh, many of us know uh, Kevin and, and his uh, uh, trajectory. And so they hail from the same place. And DC3 is where a lot of the DOD's criminal and national level um, computer investigations and digital forensics occur. So Joe's, Joe knows a lot about the way the bad guys operate. We're joined by our co-founder, Mary Dickinson, who is excellent at executive and donor communications. We're led by Executive Director Pro Tem Brigadier General uh, Francis Taylor, who, among other things, has uh, had roles in the past as commander of Air Force Office of Special Investigations and has investigated some of these same uh, uh, criminal and national circumstances that we're talking about here. And we're led by an extraordinary board of advisors, um, and 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 this is this is led by none other than previous Secretary of Homeland Security Jay Johnson. So all of those elements came together uh, under the umbrella of U.S. Cyberdome. Wow. Now you mentioned something that I think some of our listeners might not have heard before. I think you mentioned DC three. Can you let our listeners who may not be familiar with that term know what what that actually means? Sure, that's the Department of uh, Excuse me, the Department of Defense, the Cyber Crime Center, DC three, and um, uh, little known fact, but it's the world's largest computer forensics uh, laboratory. Uh, is actually there at DC3. And these are the folks within DOD that investigate uh, major criminal and uh, nation-state activity, cyber activity. Okay. And And, so so our our co-founder, Joe, used to to run the investigations uh, outfit, uh, the investigations part of DC3. So you and your colleagues there, you certainly have deep experience um, and wide experience, too, from what you've described in many different aspects of cybersecurity. So it sounds like you're doing a lot. How large is Cyberdome? I mean, you must have, what do you have, hundreds and thousands, or is it a bunch of... uh, of uh, folks who are just so super brilliant that you're all, you know, doing all these different things in a small group? Well, I don't know about the super brilliant part, but <laughs> I'll, I'll give that to our advisors. But, uh, 
really what we are is a small and efficient uh, nonprofit, right? That in where we're super efficient, we're a small organization. And what really what we do is we broker, right? Using our backgrounds, we broker the services and products of, of others for the campaign. So it's a bit of a, yeah. I guess you could call it kind of a matchmaker sort of role, gave this campaign as this sort of a, a need. And we know of a party that matches that sort of need and that's qualified as uh, to meet that sort of need. So we we bring those uh, folks together and we do it in a way where we can apply the um, uh, both in a combination of in-kind and uh, donation monies in order to sponsor those activities. Oh, interesting. Okay. Well, do you help? Yeah. We just talked about, you know, the presidential election like back in 2016, but does your group uh, help other types of campaigns beyond presidential, like maybe the Senate or House or state level? Yeah, in this latest cycle, what we said to ourselves that we, we would like to do is focus on national party committees and presidential campaigns. But uh, kind of with that, um, with that era of operation behind us, we're now looking forward to uh, Senate campaigns in the future, um, U.S. Senate campaigns. Ultimately, from there, uh, we might expand to U.S. House, and we may even ultimately go down to supporting uh, the state government level. Really, the the sky is the proverbial limit. It's really about uh, scaling our providers and scaling our um, uh, financial uh, dimension, be it donors, uh, grants is another uh, opportunity for us in the future. And, and all of those things will affect how far we can scale it. So what you're describing sounds very valuable. And I know many of my listeners who may work in organizations where they have to think about budgeting and the cost of all these types of activities that you're describing, they might be wondering, you know, how is it that you're providing services that are so valuable to campaigns um, is that considered a contribution to the campaign, or how do you do it without it being considered a contribution to the campaigns? Yeah, I suppose this is the part where I use the dad joke very carefully. Um, <laughs> so the <laughs> so what we do is we operate under the Federal Election Commission's FEC's advisory opinion uh, advisory opinions, and really the key opinion of which being. Uh, uh, the AO 2018-12, which made provision for 501c4 nonprofit organizations to play this sort of a brokering role to provide um, reduced cost or free uh, cybersecurity services and cybersecurity product uh, in certain circumstances to um, U.S. presidential, U.S. Senate, and U.S. House. Uh, as well as the organizations that support them. So that is the way that we can, it's only because of that provision, because of that advisory opinion, that we can provide our services as funded by donors. Um, We can provide those services to campaigns and not have it count as a contribution. Mm, Interesting. But that takes a lot of your time and the time of your colleagues. And so, I mean... 
we all need to get paid for our time, at least some of the time. It, so I'm sure our listeners are thinking, well, who's paying for your services then? Because it sounds like a very valuable yeah. service. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's interesting, um, you know, kind of interesting uh, collage, if you will, of uh, in-kind donations and financial donations are allowable under the FEC uh, um, advisory opinion. And so those are certainly things that we used uh, in the future uh, and with less time pressure, candidly, getting ready for the big presidential uh, uh, campaign cycle a little bit more uh, leisure time, if you will, between here and 2024, we also think that grants, uh, federal Mm -hmm. grants, are a likely source of funding for our services. Interesting. So as you're talking about this, and I don't know much about, um, you know, uh, what the different parts of the campaigns Uh, really do versus like government agencies. So I know there's party committees. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm here in in, uh, Iowa, in Des Moines, so there's there's political activity going on here all the time and in the news, but I really still don't understand about party committees and government agencies and how they help campaigns. I mean, how does your role differ from their role that they have? Yeah, that's a that's an interesting question. Uh, you know, some of those um, organizations have explicit charter to help political campaigns, uh, not only with with virus security but with other things like party committees would be a an example of that. And then you have other uh, other um, circumstances like government agencies, which may not may or may not have explicit charter to help, but um, but they're certainly uh, they certainly can help. Uh, the interesting question is, will the campaigns receive their help? Um, campaigns are, uh, interestingly, they're, they're, um, they're very isolationist. I don't mean to be critical when I say that. I just mean to observe that, you know, uh, alliances change rapidly across mm-hmm. the course of a political campaign, and um, there are sensitivities um, about the the motives and uh, and the integrity of the the personnel that surround you, right? Um, there's competitive sensibilities around, for instance, if you're the non-incumbent candidate, would do you receive services, for instance, from uh, uh, the agencies that work work in service to the incumbent candidate? Right. Uh, so there are natural sensibilities in the ecosystem that, yes, party committees and government agencies um, have charter and do support uh, political campaigns. And, and our observation is the campaigns that it can, can afford it, uh, despite these things being available to them, they, they largely operate in, uh, independently. Interesting. So. Here, again, I I have a frame of reference here in Iowa because we have, like, our Secretary of State. Um, He set up, and he's a Republican, but he set up a very good, um, you know, remote voting, vote-by-mail system, and it was very secure. Mm -hmm. I mean, it it went off so well this year, but now there's, there's changes. But, you know, he seemed like he was very open to 
receiving everyone's help to ensure that the election went off in a very secure manner. So do you work with like, and of course, I guess you said you haven't really branched out maybe to the state governments yet, but I would imagine maybe secretaries of state would be possibly one of those types of agencies that you uh, would at least coordinate with? Yeah, well, here's where our charter is kind of interesting and a little bit different. Um, For instance, when you hear phrases like um, election infrastructure, election infrastructure is pretty well defined and, and, you know, kind of in in lay speak, I mean, there is a formal definition, but in lay speak, it basically means voting machines and, you know, the voter registration databases, wherever those reside, like at at a motor vehicles department or what have you at the state level. And um, the votes, the ballots themselves, and the auditing and integrity mechanisms around those. And so sometimes when we say election security, we mean something that specific. And that election right. infrastructure is largely owned by the states and, um, and right down to the counties. And it is supported very strongly, for instance, by Department of Homeland Security, uh, Cyber and Infrastructure Security Agency, CISA, right? So that's a big, big, big part of what they do. They support that election infrastructure. And then we focus on um, the campaign community, the campaigns, the national party committees, et cetera. And then sometimes you hear this third term, like election security, that's a bit of an umbrella term. So we mean to, when for our remit, we mean to be as specific as saying the campaign community. And for now, what we really mean is we are not working in that election infrastructure. There's many talented and excellent professionals working in that infrastructure, the folks at the state, like you mentioned, DHS, CISA, and others working there. And so we felt like, hey, that they've, they've got a lot of help there. We're going to go focus on this other community, yes. this other subset of election security. Yeah. Well, it seemed like you found a soft target that definitely needed a lot of, uh, you know, bolstering of security. So very good. Right. Um, (laughs) So believe it or not, we're right up to our uh, break here. So right now it's time for a quick break to hear from our sponsors. I'm speaking today with Matt Barrett, co-founder of U.S. Cyberdome, about improving cybersecurity within political campaigns and party committees. I'm your host, Rebecca Harold, the privacy professor. You can contact me with questions and comments about this show, as well as show topic suggestions using my email, RebeccaHerald at RebeccaHerald.com, and also through my PrivacyGuidance.com and PrivacySecurityBrainiacs.com websites. Please stay with us. We will be right back after these important messages from my sponsors. what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. 
The Privacy Professor is your trusted source for effective information security, privacy and compliance advice, compliance tools, education, consulting, expert witness services, research, report writing, and board positions. Visit us online at privacyguidance.com. Rebecca also provides keynote speeches and her free Privacy Professor monthly tips messages she has published since 2007. Visit privacyguidance.com for help and answers to your questions. The Privacy Security Brainiacs team wants everyone responsible for security, privacy, and compliance to stay up to date with the latest news, risks, and security and privacy practices. Check out their growing library of topics not offered by others. Privacy Security Brainiacs also wants every business to perform automated risk assessments, which are free or value-priced for all types of security and privacy topics. You need to find out more about Privacy Security Brainiacs. Visit PrivacySecurityBrainiacs.com. You are listening to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. If you have a question or comment about the program, feel free to send an email to Rebecca Harold at RebeccaHerald.com. That's Rebecca Harold at RebeccaHerald.com. Now, back to data security and privacy with the Privacy Professor. Welcome back to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor on the Voice America's Business Channel. I'm your host, Rebecca Harold. I'm speaking today with Matt Barrett, co-founder of U.S. Cyberdome, and we're chatting about improving cybersecurity within political campaigns and party committees. So uh, we've kind of covered how um, the focus is of U.S. Cyberdome and, and how it's funded. Now, though, Matt, I want to get into maybe some of your actual services um, because I know it's all over the news. You hear it every night on, you know, national news outlets, you hear it on or see it on social media, but how does Cyberdome's services relate to false information uh, and interference and disruption efforts that are trying to affect or change votes? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, uh, that is a really interesting question. We, we, um, actually very much want to be involved in this space, and we see a connected path between cyber events, cyber attack, and what people might call disinformation, um, and, uh, or, or weaponization of that information. And once again, not, not to pick on, uh, the poor Hillary Clinton campaign, but you know that was the the, the email disclosure there as an example of basic mm-hmm. weapon weaponization of information, and um, but that and and you know that is uh, far from uh, the only example that some of our professionals have seen in some of their uh, some of their past investigations of information gain in the cyber attack being weaponized, maybe manipulated and or uh, a false narrative developed in some sort of way, and that information being put back out into the ecosystem. So, so um, 
clearly this affects votes. Clearly this is meant to, uh, can, can affect voter confidence and can affect outcomes of elections. What I've seen, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like when you are able to, like, you know, hack into a mail server and, you know, you can prove, well, we did hack in, we did get to emails, then taking that fact, it seems like makes it much easier to spin uh, a new false uh description of what was in those emails because it seems like if there's a even a seed of truth in a story that validates all the other false information that might be uh, put around that piece of of truth I mean how and I see that all the time uh, you know on fault uh, Facebook and and other Instagram and other places, it's like, oh my gosh, you know, this one thing that they put out there is true, but then everything else around it is completely false. Uh, how does your group do anything to like identify false information that's being shared or attempted to be shared with the campaigns themselves or, you know, the, the other groups that you're helping uh, with all your services? For now, yeah, for now, we have to consider that a future service. The the FEC advisory opinion I mentioned earlier, while we certainly see that as a serious thing that deserves attention and we want to get involved, the, the AO that I mentioned earlier is actually pretty narrow when it comes to disinformation. They refer to, in, in that AO 2018-12, this thing called brand monitoring, and they give it a pretty, uh, a pretty narrow and get cybersecurity-based um, definition. So uh, in the future, for instance, as we might uh, seek out our own advisory opinion, like uh, to expand services, or as maybe we talk with the FEC and Congress about enabling additional um, services, we'll certainly be engaging them on the topic of disinformation and how we might help. Oh, that would be great, Yeah. But yeah. I, I bet you're doing a lot of great things now. I'm sure, in fact, there's probably people listening who are thinking about running for, you know, office. And they're wondering, too, you know, what cybersecurity issues do I have to worry about? You know, I'm I'm not somebody that people are going to want to target or, you know, I have somebody else that's taking care of cybersecurity. I mean, maybe it would be helpful for them to know some of the cybersecurity challenges that you've seen in like uh, the 2020 elections uh, or like we've already talked about the 2016, but what, what are you seeing out there for campaigns uh, and their uh, groups that uh, you're helping to deal with? Yeah, there's there's some fascinating observations that come out of the 2020 cycle. One of them is, um, just to state some kind of basic uh, facts, I mean, a campaign is is necessarily a temporary uh, organization, right? And they tend to last, uh, the presidential campaigns tended to last about 18 months. So they have some of the properties of a startup in that they are a small organization with minimal infrastructure and funding, in particular at the beginning of that timeline. And so what that 
the activity that drives uh, the behavior, if you will, that that drives is they tend not to have dedicated cybersecurity leadership until much, much, much later in the campaign cycle. Um, so, uh, you know, an example would be um, if you just tallied up presidential candidates coming off the 2020 cycle, how many of the candidates even had a dedicated chief information security officer? And then of those, when was that chief information security officer actually uh, uh, implemented within the campaign? That alone is an outward indicator of the campaign and their approach to cybersecurity. But the fact of the matter is, is that political campaigns are in uh, cyber danger, if you will. Uh, they're at cyber risk from day one. When they register the campaign, when they say, I'm going to run a presidential campaign, um, here is my federal election campaign committee, when they say that to the FEC, uh, their cyber threat is uh, imminent. Uh, and it just grows and grows and grows throughout the campaign as you know, primary wins occur, as nominations occur, etc. So... You're talking about the cyber threat, and I think it would be, you know, interesting for the listeners to know where those threats are coming from. So are we talking about threats to campaigns that are coming, like we mentioned, from Russia and and China and North Korea, or are we also talking about, um, you know, domestic threats coming from, you know, right here within the U.S.? What type of threats are you seeing to campaigns? as far as originating from? Yeah, I mean, there's absolutely a mixture of uh, both uh, domestic and uh, uh, international threats that are there in the campaign landscape. So basically, wherever in the world you can launch uh, something digitally, which is basically (laughs) anywhere in the world, why that's where the threat can come from. so I've read in the Cyberdome goals that uh, Cyberdome does foster cross-campaign cybersecurity collaboration. You mentioned it uh, earlier, but uh, gosh, when I heard that, I've been thinking, how do you get um, cross-campaign collaboration when people are competing against each other. I mean, you know, I'm a huge uh, NFL football fan, but I know that when you're competing against another team, you're not going to show them your playbook, right? So it's like, uh, how are we going to make sure that our elections and our campaigns are secure, but at the same time, not give away our own um, secrets, if you will? You know, this pattern is very interesting because it's repeated itself a number of times, this quandary, this quandary. Um, we had the, the good fortune, uh, one of our founders had the good fortune of participating in the form, formulation of the, the Department of Defense Information Sharing and Collaborative, Collaborative Environment, or the DICE. And the DICE, not many people know that acronym, but the DICE was basically the first need-to-share, information-sharing environment that spawned from the Comprehensive uh, National Cybersecurity Initiative, CNCI. 
And it was the predecessor to all of the information sharing mechanisms that exist in the critical infrastructure community in the U.S. today. And at the time, um, the, de- the defense industrial base for whom the DICE was stood up uh, they were saying something very similar, that these big uh, uh, defense contractors were saying, well, how could we possibly share information uh, uh, from our organization about cyber attacks we're facing? I'm, sh- I'm sharing that information with competitors, and that may lead in some way to the erosion of my organization. Uh, and it takes time to get past those sensibilities and, and also just the trust the people that you are collaborating with, it takes it takes a decent amount of time. Like, think in terms of a decade uh, worth of time. But people do get there eventually. And then we saw that same pattern repeated with the respective critical infrastructure sectors. And nowadays, uh, a, a fixture across all the critical infrastructure sectors are the information sharing and analysis centers, the ISACs. And there's this thing called an ISAL that's meant for non-critical infrastructure, um, information sharing and analysis organization, ISAL. And one of the things U.S. Cyberdome did is we stood up the first ever political campaign ISAL specifically to foster that cross-campaign cybersecurity collaboration. Oh, wow. Well, congratulations on that. I mean, it might be confidential, so if, if it is, just say, I can't tell you, but what campaigns were involved with that initial one that you stood up? I can't tell you. Okay, there you go. <laughs> I figured that would be it, but I know my listeners would be saying to me later, why didn't you ask that question? So I asked the question. Um, yeah. So I would imagine, too, to get that trust, which you just preserved there quite nicely, um, would also require maybe having a very, I I don't know if I want to say narrow scope uh, for what you're collecting, but I guess taking care to not go outside of, of getting more information or getting into areas where you don't really need to get into that possibly could concern the campaign's uh, you're helping. Yeah. I mean, like, um, we've heard of concer- similar concerns, not a, not identical, but some similar concerns out of the critical infrastructure community. For instance, uh, if I share information with the U.S. government, am I going to be subject to FOIA? Or if I share mm-hmm. information with, uh, if I share information um, it, trying to do the right thing, trying to do a good thing, and I inadvertently share some privacy information, I'm going to be subject to a regulatory action. Um, and, and you know, over time, we've, we collectively have developed the legal frameworks to put people at ease around such things. And the other thing that we have going for us that can be leveraged from the information sharing communities is we have things like uh, the traffic light protocols um, that uh, where the party that contributes a given piece of information can say, how broadly may this be disseminated? So you have a, a TLP, mm. you know, uh, you kind of white 
amber, uh, uh, green, red, right? You have those sorts of color coding that affects the sensitivity of the information and the dissemination, and that's something that the contributing party uh, has control over. So we are uh, implementing all of those. Uh, uh, we're implementing the, the TLP mechanism, and as time proceeds, who knows, maybe we'll even have to address things with some legal frameworks to, uh, to make put people at ease. Yes. Well, I would imagine so. You know, I want to get into just a little bit of the security types of issues that you do help campaigns with, because I just realized we haven't really talked about Mm -hmm. that much. But one of the things uh, I think that I've seen with campaigns um, here locally and also, you know, on a national scale, though, is data hygiene, meaning you know, it seems like some of the campaigns are using data that they've just been collecting for decades, and they end up sending me here at my own homes, you know, this election cycle, I got, uh, would get, you know, 20-some odd um, types of uh, mailings from campaigns using slightly different uh, names and a little bit variances in my um, address. So I'm thinking, well, if if they have my name in there that many times uh, with those different variances, they must have a lot of old data in there too, which seems to me it gives the perception to people that, oh, that's why there's people, you know, dead that are are voting or whatever because of all these different things that people are seeing. Do you help like campaigns just to improve maybe the data quality and and how to prevent them from, you know, keeping around in uh, inactive, if you will, or no longer valid data? Is that part of it or is that getting down too much into the actual, um, you know, daily uh, workings of the campaign? Yeah, I think we're across the line into the daily workings there. But what we do, um, we are certainly empowered to help folks with the the security of said data. And there's a lot of Mm -hmm. data that a campaign um, manages that's very, very sensitive. I mean, their donor Mm -hmm. lists, uh, their volunteer lists, and the privacy information thereof. Volunteers, by the way, often operating on their own IT, right? So we have a privacy issue there that is akin to bring your own device in corporate America. Mm-hmm. Um, we have, uh, of course, the, the sensitive policy stances. We have uh, marketing and communication uh, messages and campaigns that are planned but are not yet public. So all of these types, data types are there and more uh, in a campaign. And so our efforts... Um, uh, addresses the the security of those. Um, we started in in this last cycle. We um, felt the need to mm, uh, get more active in the fight, if you will, and we focused more on monitoring uh, the campaign environments and the party committee environments to ensure that. Um, any bad cybersecurity threats that were manifesting in the environment were noticeable immediately and such that the campaign was empowered to take action immediately. So this is a bit of a, if you will, hand-to-hand combat <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, uh, flagship service 
this security monitoring of ours. But over time, what we want to do more and more is focus on some of those hygiene issues that you mentioned and also focus on, um, you know, just kind of securing the, uh, securing the infrastructure, vulnerability management, the patch management, dimensions, uh, all of these things are the basic, the basic policies and, um, uh, uh, those type of hygiene issues also are quite deserving of some attention. Yeah, and like you said, when you have kind of a temporary organization, like a campaign is, it's only around for a few months or maybe a couple of years, depending on your campaign. But like, I, I like to try to put myself into the bad guy's shoes, if you will. And if I wanted to attack a campaign, I think I would go for the ransomware route because I would think to myself, they probably don't make frequent backups of all their data. So they would be desperate to get that data back if I wanted to attack them with ransomware. So that's, is that something that Cyberdome helps them with too, to, you know, make sure that they do have good, you know, frequent backups. And if they do, like if they get hit with ransomware, would they be able to give your team a call just to say, what are we going to do here? Yeah, broadly, the, the, even the current advisory opinion allows for some broad cybersecurity con- consultation. And so we did okay. help folks understand their risk exposures, um, you know, including things like, hey, you, you know, you've got, a, you've got a data issue, a data availability issue in the works here. You have a risk of losing that data, ransomware, or other reasons. You know, mm-hmm. so we did uh, point those things out along the way. Um, and and um, that's a, that's definitely a threat at large, let alone in the <laughs> in the political campaign, so the ransomware circumstance. Oh yeah, it's well, it's so effective that the the criminals love to use it because they know it's very lucrative for them. So I'm curious, when you're dealing with campaigns, um, what are some of the most common questions you get from the campaigns? I mean, do you get questions? from the politicians themselves, or is it primarily the behind-the-scenes campaign folks that are asking about, you know, what should they do to help secure all of this data that they have about voters and and donors and, and all that? Yeah, tri- typically our point of engagement is a, a director of IT or a chief technology officer or a chief information security officer. So it's somebody like that who exist in the campaign structure, uh, you know, whether a direct report or maybe uh, through another person reporting into a campaign manager. That's typically where we interface. Um, uh, so there's never never really an opportunity or a reason to interact with the, the candidates themselves or uh, kind of uh, just the facts, ma'am, behind the scenes uh, yeah. trying to help uh, secure things. <laughs> Yeah, well, I bet, though, they take uh, your point of contacts, probably take uh, the information that you provide, and hopefully they use that to help, you know, in their own training of their own campaign teams um, to go forward and make sure that everything's secure. Have you started working on the 2022 um, or the 2024? I mean, are you going to skip the 2022 and just focus again on the presidential or... uh, Looking forward, what what are you doing right now, I guess, as far as broadly um, the types of activities? Yeah, so we're getting we're getting ramped up for twenty twenty two right now. We're absolutely uh, gonna support that 
cycle. Uh, we continue to support um, party committees as of as of right now, even though our uh, presidential uh, campaign support has has wound down. And um, you know, so it's kind of through the party committees that we might spider out and uh, support some of those interim. Uh, elections, and then of course, getting ready for 2024. Some of our efforts there are um, kind of longer-term efforts involve uh, engaging with with Congress to uh, talk with them about how we might address some some of the more systemic things and how we might make some of what we do a little bit more permanent. Uh, you know, FEC advisory opinion was wonderful. Uh, and is wonderful, uh, but uh, it, it uh, you know, advisory opinion is not necessarily a, a permanent fixture in the community and something that campaigns and, and party committees can uh, bank upon uh, uh, into the future. So mm-hmm. how do we do that uh, is, a, is a quandary, is a question, is something that we're processing with uh, congressional points of contact right now. Oh, very interesting. Well, I know a lot of our listeners are probably wondering what your web address is for Cyberdome. Maybe you can give that. Sure. It's www.uscyberdome.com. Well, that's very easy then. (laughs) Very intuitive. (laughs) And, And we're already getting here to the very end of our show. So, you know, we've covered a lot of ground today with regard to what U.S. Cyberdome does, but... If you had to summarize it in just one or two minutes, what is the key point or lesson that you want our listeners to take away from our discussion today? I would say that the the things that are at risk for a political campaign are much more are much larger than uh, momentary inconvenience of a campaign's computer system is not working. Uh, the confidence in the election outcomes uh, uh, in and of itself is a threat to our democracy when we start to question the confidence in election outcomes. Um, the uh, influence on votes is at stake as well, as well as the long-term national security uh, the folks in the campaign, not just the candidate, but the folks in the campaign will ultimately, they may now currently, and they will ultimately potentially have some government roles where they have access to uh, sensitive uh, governmental information. And so the campaign uh, infrastructure may be a point of entry for a longer term, higher stake sort of play by a party seeking to do the United States harm. So the reason to focus on this community uh, is very, very great, and we need more uh, excellent professionals in this space focused on this community because they have challenges that are above and beyond uh, your typical cybersecurity because even that is quite a challenge. The political campaign has a level of challenge beyond that. So we need your excellent help and participation in this space. Wonderful. Well, that is a a very nice summary and wrap-up and and call to action to our listeners. Thank you so much for being my guest today, Matt. I truly have enjoyed speaking with you today. My pleasure, Rebecca. Today I've been speaking with Matt Barrett, 
co-founder of U.S. Cyberdome, about improving cybersecurity within political parties and party committees. So please send me feedback about this show. Would you like to hear more about this topic? Just let me know. You can contact me by using Rebecca Harold at RebeccaHerald.com. And if you cannot make the scheduled debut show on the first Saturday of each month, you will be able to listen to the recordings and you can hear all of my recordings out on your favorite uh, you know, podcast app or you, of course, can go to the voiceamerica.com business channel and get to all of my shows there as well as listening to them from my privacy securitybrainiacs.com uh, website. So until our next show, Please think about this. Ask those that you do business with and that you work for if they are doing all that they can to secure the information that you've entrusted to them. Be privacy aware in the month for, in the whole month ahead. Bye for now. Thank you for tuning in this week. Data security and privacy with the Privacy Professor can be heard live the first Saturday of each month at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until next time, stay safe.